it's not about offering solutions. It's about holding people in their pain. It's about, wow, that's really hard. Wow, I'm here for you no matter what. Oh God, you just had a loss. Oh, that transfer just failed. I'm coming over and bringing you dinner. You don't need to open the door. I'm just leaving it for you. And when you're ready to get it, it's there. And I'm going to keep calling you or keep texting you every single day. You don't need to answer. You don't ever need to answer. But I want you to know that I'm here for you when you're ready to talk. That's what it's about. It's about the, we don't have the power to change people's situations. We don't have the power to change people's minds. What we do have the power to do is make people feel that no matter what's going on in their life, that they can come to us no matter what. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment, but it also represents renewal, hope, confidence, and optimism as we look toward the future. This is expressed in many ways, but perhaps most obviously in the Torah reading of the first day of Rosh Hashanah, where we read that Sarah, after a lifetime of being unable to have children, gave birth to Yitzchak at the age of 90. In the Haftarah of that same day, we read the similar story of Hannah, who was barren until God accepted her prayer, and she gave birth to Shmuel Hanavi soon thereafter. But these stories of hope, alongside other themes of Rosh Hashanah, may have the opposite effect for people who suffer from infertility. Seeing families in the synagogue, sitting around a Yom Tov table alongside couples who have children, and even hearing that God answers Sarah, yet wondering, why hasn't God said yes to me too, may be exceedingly painful. To discuss some of the issues of infertility, including how we can all develop the proper sensitivity to people who suffer from infertility, I was honored to speak with Dr. Amy Barron, the founder and executive director of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby. We'll get to that conversation momentarily. First, subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and review it as well. Make sure to join the conversation on our Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group. I also invite you to subscribe, for free, to my Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. If you are already a subscriber, or if you subscribe by the Thursday before Rosh Hashanah, I'll send you my PDF, The Laws of Tekiat Shofar. Again, it's free, and you can cancel at any time, so please subscribe today. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, the most effective way to get your message out to a wide audience is by having a high-quality, professionally produced podcast. And at JCH Podcast Productions, we will do exactly that. Go to jchpodcasts.com or write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com to learn how we can help you make a fantastic and effective podcast. Dr. Amy Barron is the founder and executive director of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby, which provides a warm and nurturing space for people going through infertility, pregnancy loss, infant loss, surrogacy, or adoption, in addition to connecting those families to resources in the Jewish community at large. I Was Supposed to Have a Baby is a nonprofit organization that utilizes social platforms to support Jewish individuals and families struggling to have a child, offering a modern solution to an age-old problem. Long years of secondary infertility and multiple miscarriages left Dr. Barron with the acute awareness that the Jewish community was not adequately supporting those trying to build a family. People in crisis need to be comforted and validated, and the rest of the community needs to know how to help. 
She is passionate about being a voice for those who do not feel ready to share their story, but want the world to know of their suffering so that no one should have to go through it alone again. Dr. Barron was formerly the Director of Innovation and Growth at Nechama Comfort and has also worked as an attending pediatrician in the Newborn Nursery and Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital before taking a leave of absence after her third miscarriage. She lives in the New York area with her husband and children. Dr. Amy Barron, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Amy, you are the founder of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby. I'm guessing that many of our listeners know what that organization is, but for those who don't and for those who need a reminder, could you explain your personal story and how it led to the founding of this organization and what this organization is and does? Sure. Thank you so much. I'm a person who never thought that I was going to have any difficulty having children or thinking about having children. Um, I'm a pediatrician and, you know, just that's naturally like my thought is about kids and I got married and love taking care of kids and immediately wanted to start a family. And so our story basically is that we had our first very quickly had three plus years of secondary infertility after our first, um, and then ended up having my second and my third very quickly afterwards, the infertility that we experienced between our first and our second seemingly just went away as quickly as it came, it disappeared. But then after our third, we had four second trimester miscarriages in a row. And look, I'm going to jump and give you like the very short version of my story in that, thank God, we did end up after many years of struggle and pain, we did end up having our last two children. So I do have five children thank God, and they're all healthy and well. But in the period of my fertility journey and the part of that part of my life, we struggled tremendously. I mean, I mentioned those four losses. We also had two other losses, but this, this experience of not being able to build the family that I thought that I wanted, not being able to have it at the, have those kids at the time that I wanted is a struggle that was deeply personal and actually caused me to quit my job because it was too painful for me to take care of other people's kids as I was struggling to have my own. And at that point, look, we're talking about between, you know, 12 and 15 years ago. So the world was very different. You know, there were plenty of things that we didn't talk about because they were taboo topics and things we still don't talk about now, but I think the world is much more open in terms of many different kinds of difficult conversations, things like cancer, mental illness, addiction, divorce, and fertility stuff. And so at that point, it was extremely isolating because we didn't have anyone to talk to. Nobody, these things weren't being spoken on high from the pulpit, you know, in shuls. There weren't any support groups that I knew about at the time. There were some I found out later. Um, It was just a really isolating experience. My friends, family, nobody was talking about it. It just... I was kind of in my own silo and my friends and my family didn't really know how to support me. And so the work that I do at I Was Supposed to Have a Baby was basically meant to combat all of that. Now, again, the world is different and we do have lots of conversations about difficult topics, including fertility in today's day and age. But the specific unique piece that we do at I Was Supposed to Have a Baby is we use social media 
I know, like crazy thing. We use social media for good, but we do. We use social media to support people all over the world who are struggling to build their family. And so what that looks like is beyond like the five platforms that we're on, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook, Thread, blah, blah, blah. We also have a podcast. We also have virtual support groups. But the reason why it's the power of social media and the power of virtual connections, and that's that's really the special sauce of the work that we do, is because number one, people, even though it's a little bit of an easier topic to talk about these days, people still have difficulty bringing it up in public and bringing it up to their close ones. That's number one. And so when you really can use your phone and get support literally 24 hours a day when you're crying in your bed or when you're standing online at the grocery store, there's a tremendous power in that. And the anonymity of it also that You don't have to make an account on any of these platforms. You can scroll anonymously, or if you want to make an account, it can be with a fake name. You can interact with any of these platforms in a way that is very private and is dignified. I know it's crazy that I'm actually using social media and dignified in the same sentence, but we're going with it. Um, It's in a dignified way so that people feel that support without brushing up against their privacy concerns, the worry that people are going to judge them for the comments or the kinds of things that they're saying or doing. And so that's the essence of the work that we do. Thank you for explaining that. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I'd like to understand a little bit better what you mean by support, because the word support is one of these catch-all phrases. So when you say that you offer a place where people can receive the support, what does support look like? Perfect. So I, I want to distinguish the fact that we are different than many of the other fertility organizations out there who do absolutely incredible work. Um, and we work hand in hand with each of them. But here's what support means for us. And I was supposed to have a baby. It does not mean that we're providing medical guidance. It does not mean that we're providing financial guidance, financial assistance, excuse me. It does not mean that we're providing halachic guidance. What it means is that we're providing emotional support. And so what I when I say that we use social media to provide support, it's the emotional support of our content every single day, all day long, is all about hitting different pain points that people are experiencing in a private way so that, again, dealing with this privacy so that they can feel the emotional support. We specifically post content that will hit different pain points for our community. And we know based on all of those different pain points, whether it's holidays, like we're having this conversation now, holidays that are around different times of year. Um, We're also having discussions around back to school. Um, But then we also hit different things on the calendar, the fertility calendar. For example, October is Infant and Pregnancy Loss Awareness Month. So we do a lot of programming around grief and loss. Um, In the spring, April is National Infertility Awareness Week in the United States. So we do a lot of infertility-specific programming. So it's specific emotional support um, that we use social media to deliver. Okay. And as long as you mentioned medical and halachic 
issues. I'll just point out right now that we're not talking about that now. However, my co-host on Intimate Judaism, Tali Rosenbaum, and I had you as a guest last year on Intimate Judaism, episode 43. If people are interested in hearing more about some of these same issues that we're talking about now, along with some of the halachic and medical issues, I recommend that they listen to episodes 43 and 44 of Intimate Judaism. I'd like to go back to something you mentioned, Amy, at the beginning in terms of your own struggle with what you call secondary infertility. And the reason I want to mention that is not about you, but about the definitions, because I think a lot of people think of infertility as we're entering the time of Rosh Hashanah now. Sarah Yemenu went through an entire lifetime without having children, and that is obviously infertility. But there are also other forms, such as what you mentioned, when someone can have children, but there's something called secondary infertility. Could you provide a few definitions so that we're all on the same page knowing what we're talking about? Absolutely. So when we talk classically, when people talk about fertility and infertility, what really what they're what people usually mean is they usually mean primary infertility. Primary infertility means when someone doesn't have any children and they want children. Um, Secondary infertility means when you already have a child or many children, but you still want more and you're unable to have more. So I, I give you a great example that's specifically relevant for our community. You know, people in the regular world think secondary infertility, like it was for me initially in my own story, it's I had one child and I was trying to have my second. But in our world, we know that people have three, four, five, six, 12, 15 kids. If there is someone who comes to me, regardless of how many children she has, and she wants more, and she's unable to conceive for whatever reason to have that next child, even if she has six or 12 kids at home, that the definition is still the same. It's still secondary infertility. Okay, I'll ask us presumably an obvious question, but just to make sure that all of our definitions are correct and we're on the same page, there's a certain point when secondary infertility or infertility becomes menopause or something like that. It's no longer considered infertility when the reason that a person can't have children is because they're too old. Yes, the the difference is here is, look, I mean, could you say, do I have women who are at that like real age boundary where are in their mid to late forties who desperately want more children or want a child and can't because biologically it's not happening anymore? Is that considered infertility? Yes, but the reason for it is that their body's not working anymore, right? They're not producing any more eggs. And so I think, you know, classically, the definitions are meant for the people after they start menarche, after they start their period, until menopause. That's classically what we're talking about in terms of the time period. As we've alluded to, you talked about the past 12 or 15 years. People speak about this much more openly now, but also medicine has progressed tremendously. There are amazing things that modern medicine can do for people who are struggling with infertility, primary and secondary. Clearly, we have no desire to change that whatsoever. That's a great thing. I do wonder, however, if there is a possible negative consequence to that. Some people who continue to struggle despite the advances in medicine, they might feel even more isolated because there are fewer people who are suffering from infertility. They probably feel very, very alone. Or in addition, something else that I've seen, certain people, they're well-meaning, but they say, oh, nowadays anyone can have a child. And that can be extremely hurtful in that way. So is this something that you've seen as well, or am I off base? 
No, no, no. You're totally, totally on, um, spot on. In fact, the this is this is actually a tremendous problem that we deal with now because because you know saying just do IVF is like this ubiquitous throwaway comment that people talk about all the time. Like, oh, like you know you've been married for X number of years. Why aren't you doing IVF? Okay, so I'm just going to break it down quickly for your audience. Number one. IVF is not accessible for everyone. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is depending on where you live in the United States or frankly around the world, those treatments are either either covered financially or not covered financially. So if you live in Israel, IVF treatments, fertility treatments are completely covered. Um, But if you live in the United States, that's not the case. And so therefore, depending on whether your insurance covers it or not, you might not be able to afford IVF. So that's number one. And the average cost of one cycle in the United States is approximately fifteen dollars to $20,000. So we're not talking about a small amount of money. So that's the first thing. There, there may simply be financial constraints that people you know, can't even access IVF to begin with. Number two, let's just talk about the people who have... Um, doctor phobia, medical phobia, needle phobia, the people who are not interested in having IVF because they prefer natural things, they think that God is going to save them, whatever the reasons are, there are many people that don't even view IVF as an option because there's some kind of barrier, personal, um, philosophical, religious, and, and I don't mean religious within our framework of religious, but it's, 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 I'm using the definition much more broadly here. Right. Understood. Those people, IVF is not an option. So to say that to them is really like disingenuous and like just inappropriate. Number three, even if you get to a place where IVF becomes relevant and you can afford it and you're interested in pursuing it, IVF is not 100% successful, period. People think that it is, but I can tell you hundreds upon hundreds, maybe we're in the thousands of stories, people who have the means, who have the emotional fortitude, and we're going to get to that in the next point in a second, who the treatment just doesn't work. Um, And that can be for a whole host of reasons. So the idea that just, you know, saying to someone, well, why aren't you pursuing this fertility treatment that like everybody gets it and everybody has it and everybody has a baby is just simply false. Um, There've been many stories about celebrities, you know, all over the world who have come out in the last couple of years actually saying, I tried these treatments. And these are people obviously with access to, you know, Money is not a barrier for them. And also they have access to the best doctors. They can get themselves their appointments, et cetera, to all all these different kinds of people. And they still don't have children. So I think that that's a real wake up call to everyone who thinks that IVF is the answer. And number four, and and by the way, this is a list that could be like one through a hundred. I'm giving you the top four here. But number four, emotionally and physically, IVF places a tremendous strain on a person's body, on a person's emotional state, on on relationships, on all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the financial piece and have nothing to do with the actual medical piece itself. The egg meeting the sperm, it's, it's all of the other stuff. And there are many people who just like, will, will try IVF or 
possibly even like try it multiple times, but have one failure, have two failures, or maybe like have some success, but end up with horrific side effects for whatever reason. This treatment is revolutionary and miraculous, but it is not fail, fail proof as we know. And it does, it, it's not as simple as just like, you know, like eating some green things and like, you know, oh, just, just take some medicine and just take some, take some shots and like everything will be fine. It's not simple. And to really, to, to, I think the, your, your specific point about really like, just like the ubiquitous throwaway line of just do IVF is very hurtful and painful for people who it's failed or they've chosen not to do the treatment for specific reasons, it's extremely painful to them. Well, thank you for explaining that. That is probably very enlightening for a lot of people listening. You mentioned that one of the objections that some people might have, religiously as you put it, is, well, God's going to take care of it. That leads us to Rosh Hashanah. That leads us to the holiday we're about to celebrate. I think Rosh Hashanah, for people who are struggling with infertility, can be especially difficult for several reasons. First of all, just the theme of Rosh Hashanah, the whole idea of birth is central to Rosh Hashanah, whether we're talking about Hayom Harat Olam, today is the birth of the world, or even technically the womb of the world, the idea that Sarah, Rachel, and Chana were remembered by God in Rosh Hashanah. These are all obviously hopeful on the one hand, but on the other hand, someone who is listening to our liturgy, someone who listens to Kriyat Torah on Rosh Hashanah can say, that's wonderful that God gave a baby to Sarah and Chana, but what about me? I'm still waiting. So that's one element of the Chag that can be very difficult. A second element is the fact that we're going through the year. Another year has passed, and I still don't have a child. And of course, a third element is one which is true for all holidays in some sense, which is these are family times. These are times when people are in shul with their families. Perhaps on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, more than other Chagim, more women go to shul in the Orthodox world, and they come with their children, and it becomes, therefore, more in your face, more triggering, perhaps. I was hoping you could comment on how people deal with Rosh Hashanah and how you've seen that affect people. Um, Every single point, all those three points that you made are absolutely a thousand percent true. Um, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and as exactly as you said, every single holiday is triggering. This holiday is particularly triggering. And I'm going to bring up a fourth point also. It's triggering because like any of these milestone events that happen in our calendar, they're reminders of where we were last year and where we are now and the things that we daven for and that we hoped that this year was going to be a time that was going to be different, that this year I was going to have a baby in my arms when I came to shul to listen to shofar, or at least I was going to be pregnant at that point. And it's just a reminder of another year passing. Look, we have a lot of discussions with the I was supposed to have a baby community about all of these difficult themes and giving people tips and suggestions on how they can fortify themselves and also how the rest of the community can be supportive of someone who is struggling. And I'm just going to sidebar for a five seconds here and say that we don't always know when people are struggling, right? The, you know, it's not like people walk in with a sign on their chest when they walk into shul and say, hi, I've been trying to have a baby past five years. I mean, we may know that someone got married five years ago and they have children yet, 
but there can be, you know, a myriad of reasons as to why that's the case. So when I see all these tips and suggestions, I want to be very careful that you don't know what's going on in people's lives. And just because someone has been married for X number of time, X number of years, or just because someone has one child or two children and then have a large age gap, it doesn't mean that they're actually struggling. And to presuppose that, to put that diagnosis on them without really knowing is also can be triggering for people. So I'm just reminding people that things are not always what they seem. I'll give you a very quick example. What if someone's having marital marital difficulties? What if someone's having medical difficulties that have nothing to do with infertility, but it's preventing them from having a child? So just that's, that's a quick I hold. I, I just want to remind people before moving on. Okay, so what can you do yourself if you are struggling and these themes are difficult? A few things. Number one is the big idea about God and God being this all-knowing, punitive God, or so you think in your head of, I've been doing all of the right things. I've been trying. I've been davening. I've been go- doing all the segulos. I've been doing all the things. And you have not given me my baby. I want to remind people that God is not like a slot machine. It's not the, you put this in and you get this out. It doesn't work that way. We don't actually know how it works. We like we see all the time, like, you know, all these wonderful things that are happening to all of our friends. And we're thinking like, why are they so much better than we are? Like, how come I'm not, I don't have a baby. How come I'm not getting those things? Why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not going to even try to give an answer to that. It would be impossible right. for me to do that, right? It's, but the the notion that, you know, you input something and then God gives you what you want is just not the way it works. I think that the concept that we try to share with people that people say is helpful and was helpful to me at the time when I was struggling is the idea that God is always listening and it is okay to be angry with God. Is it, it is okay to have these difficult emotions and like sharing all of the like yelling and screaming of like, why aren't you giving this to me? How come you're not remembering me? I mean, look, we see this directly in all of the thing that we read, like in Bratius, I mean, over and over and over, right? Like these women over and over again, in addition to the Rosh Hashanah Davening, these women are like, how come you forgot me? You know, Sarah's laughing. Oh, I'm going to have a baby at this age. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, it's never going to happen. You've forgotten me all of these years. And like the jealousy and all of that. These all things that everybody goes through. And I think what, what we remind, what we try to remind people is the idea that God and your relationship with God is exactly that, that it's a relationship and relationships are going to have ups and downs. And in order to have that relationship, it means that there are times that you're going to feel closer and there are times you're going to feel further away, but that anger and that, um, feeling like you've been forgotten and feeling like you're not being listened to, that's a deeply important piece of a relationship. It means that you care and it means that the relationship is there. And I, I, for me personally, and I'll I'll bring this like very personal now, um, 
there were many years where Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur came around and I could not go to shul. I could not daven. Um, these were around the times of my miscarriages. I had actually two miscarriages that were in different years that were right before Rosh Hashanah. And I just, I couldn't go to shul. I, I like couldn't face seeing people, let alone like I would literally sit in my living room and the master would be open and I couldn't daven. And those were years that I actually, we called our rabbi and I was like totally embarrassed, but I said like, I can't go to shul, but I really want to hear chauffeur. Can you have somebody come and blow for me? And he absolutely understood. I mean, we, we had been talking to him a lot about our losses anyway. And I felt absolutely ridiculous having this teenager come into my house. Like I'm not infirmed. I don't have a broken leg. I don't have anything. And like, he had no idea why he was coming and blowing for me, but he did. But that saved my dignity, but it also allowed me to have the tiniest bit of connection that felt like I needed to have in order for Rosh Hashanah to be I'm, I'm like searching for the word here, but to be somewhat meaningful in a time of terrible pain. And that was what worked for me. So I think that for all of the people out there that are having difficulty in whatever way they are, going to shul, opening up a machzor, like joining fa family meals, going out and just being in public in general around this time, figure out the ways for you that you can still, in the way that you want, the way that you can participate in a in this holiday that still feels genuine and feels comfortable for you. Because there are lots of layers of this that are not necessary. And especially when you're in an emotionally fraught state, you may not be ready to handle any of these things. And so my example is just one. There are lots of others. Find the things that work for you. And I want to just say that these were a couple of years in time. Over time, because this was about a relationship and sometimes in relationships, you feel closer and you feel more, more distant to others, that that relationship did come back just because you feel distant now doesn't mean that you're going to feel this distance forever. And so do the thing that feels okay for you now, because if you force it, it's not going to be good. Thank you so much for sharing that very personal story. I think what you're saying resonates so much with me right now, just because a lot of what I've been dealing with lately on this podcast and also in my Substack has been exactly what you said, that God is not a vending machine, even though we often think that you put the money in and you get the candy bar out. And it just doesn't work that way. Sometimes we believe in the cartoon version where, well, if you pray enough, if you only do this enough times, then it should work. The problem is then either you end up angry at yourself for not trying hard enough or angry at God for not listening to you. And one way or the other, you can still be angry at yourself or angry at God. That's a different question, but that's just not how the system works. And we have to internalize that's not the way a real relationship is all about, that sometimes the answer no is an opportunity for God and you to go into a different kind of relationship. There are all sorts of ways of looking at it, but looking at it as a pure 
as I call it, the Santa Claus in the sky, is probably an immature way of looking at God. And I think it's too too frequently cited in our communities and seen as that. That obviously is an entirely different context, an entirely different topic. But thank you for mentioning that. I will ask you, you talked about your rabbi in general. In terms of dealing with rabbinic authorities through your work, do you find that rabbis are generally understanding and that they understand or that there's a lot more work that needs to be done in order to train them to know what some of the emotional difficulties are that people are facing? I think the answer is yes and yes. I mean, are are we certainly in a much better place now than we were, you know, 12 to 15 years ago? Absolutely. Is there still a lot of work that, that needs to be done? Absolutely. Okay. Now, you mentioned how people who are struggling can deal with Rosh Hashanah and other issues. Let's talk a little bit about people who are not struggling and who want to be sensitive and may not know what to do. There are obviously people that are open about their fertility struggles, and that's one kind of person. There's another kind of person who may be quiet about it. We don't know if they're struggling from a kind of infertility. And people don't want to be insensitive. I don't know anyone who intentionally is insensitive, but often insensitivity happens almost automatically. Simply showing up at the park with your kids can be insensitive from some person's perspective. What does somebody who does not struggle with infertility do? Can you give some recommendations in order to make sure they are able to develop that sensitivity without compromising their ability to communicate? Because I'll just say one thing as well. I was talking with my wife, Eliza, about this before we started recording. The drawback of being sensitive is that sometimes it means you can't talk anymore because I'm so afraid of offending somebody, I no longer can say anything. That's obviously extreme. I'm not suggesting that either extreme is right. So the question is, how do you maintain a normal relationship with somebody while being careful not to say something that's triggering or say something that can cause pain? You know, I love exactly what you're saying about your conversation with Aliza, because I I get a lot of that flack um, in terms of the work that I do. I hear about it from the other side of like, well, that means just we can't say anything anymore. Like what, what you're telling me that I, I I can't talk about my vacation because other people don't have vacations and I can't talk about my job because other people don't have jobs. Like, okay, so so let's just break this down here. I think that there are there are specific ways that we in our community, we have these very deliberate conversations around family life and specifically around status, right? It's are you married? Are you single? How many children do you have? How many years have you been married? Oh, how old is your youngest? Like there are all these kinds of questions that are specifically going to like, so where are you holding? Right? It's it's this like, where are you holding? Um, oh, your youngest is five. Oh. Oh, um, you've been married for six years. Oh. Oh, you only have two kids? Oh. Oh, how old are you? You're 35? Mm. Oh, you don't have children. Oh, excuse me. Oh, you're 35? Oh, I, I thought you were in your 20s. You're not married yet. Oh, right? There's this like, we're constantly sort of like keeping tabs on people in terms of the questions that we ask. So my suggestion, stop keeping tabs on people. <laughs> like, You can do it internally in your head. You can make those like calculations and you can have these conversations with your spouse or with your close friends, but don't ask people directly about their status. So other things that you can say instead, because obviously we all like to make conversation. So 
instead of keeping tabs on people, it's the, hey, how have you been? Tell me about the last year. What's been going on in your life? Or when you're trying to dig about someone's family, but you can't ask the question. And well, I'm saying that you can't ask the question. It's so tell me about your family. You're not saying, are you married? You're not saying how many children do you have? You're not saying how many years you've been married. You're just saying, tell me about your family. And that actually gives an opening. It's an open-ended way of just letting people answer in the way that they want, as opposed to you directing the conversation. And I'll give you a really quick, like perfect example. I was at a wedding a couple of years ago with extended family. And I was sitting next to this older woman, never met her before. She was friends with the other side and we started chatting. And there was something about what she was saying that made me think that she didn't have children. I knew she was sitting with her husband. I wasn't sure, but there was something about that. So I said to her, so tell me about your family. And do you know what I heard about? I heard about her sister and I heard about her cousin who lives with her. And I heard about her other sister who lives down the block. She didn't have any children. And so I immediately would have isolated her. And if I would have asked, tell me about your children or how many children do you have? So I think like when we're meeting people or when we're catching up with people, instead of asking them the pointed questions, Give them the opening to share what they want to share. So that's the general rule that I always try to talk to people about this time of year. And then um, we can share this resource with you if you would like afterwards. But we have a list of 49 things, things, questions, topics that you can talk about that have nothing to do with babies or children. You know, the weather. What did you do on vacation this year? Where did you go? What kind of books are you reading recently? What's that dish? What's that restaurant that you go to that you love? Like, I want to hear about that. Like, oh, what what's the most frustrating thing that's going on at work these days? Like, and on and on and on and on that have absolutely nothing to do with children. And so I think all of us in general should try to open up our lexicon and open up our conversations. There are so many interesting things to talk about in the world that have nothing to do with diapers, preschool, like back to school nights, parent-teacher conferences, tuition, um, et cetera. So you're like, there's a whole world out there. Go find it. Okay, that's wonderful advice. And I definitely would like that resource. I'll put it in the show notes for this episode. I'm going to push back just a little bit, not because I disagree with anything that you said. I completely agree with everything you said, but I want to try to clarify it a little bit because that's in the context of asking people questions. But there's also just the fact that, in other words, you could be sitting around, I rush a Shana table, and this person comes down with her four children, and this other person is struggling with secondary infertility, and she's triggered by that. Just the fact that a mother is dealing with her children, and she wishes that she had four children as well. That's a little bit more difficult because it's the existence that you have that can be painful for other people. And I'm not blaming the other people for being triggered by that, but there's very little that the person who has four children can do. She can't not bring them to the table. So can you help us navigate that sort of situation? Absolutely. So a couple of ideas. Number one, you as the person who is struggling, 
you have complete ownership of your holiday plans. You can ask who's coming, who's going to be there, and then you can make a decision as to whether that's going to be triggering for you or not. And then if it's going to be triggering, then, you know, it's it's a good idea to share like, hey, um, can I come to this meal instead of that meal? Like I'm now presuming that someone is not staying, staying at someone's house for two days or three days, depending on the year that the holiday is. Um, you know, can I come for this meal instead of that meal? Can I come to a smaller meal instead of this meal? Um, so you have complete power over the situations that you put yourself in. In addition, maybe it's that everybody descends on your mother and this one has four kids and this one has five kids. And it's the thing that everyone does that everybody gets together for Rosh Hashanah. Maybe this is the year because for whatever reason, you're in a particularly precarious state emotionally that you choose to make different plans. And yes, that offends people. I, I, might, I mean, we need to take the word might out of the sentence. That's certainly going to offend people because people are going to be like, well, what do you want me to do? I have these children exactly as you just said, Scott, right? But at the end of the day, if people love you and you have an open, honest communication with them, you can say to them, like, I'm just going through a hard time right now. And we're choosing to have smaller meals with people who are our peers instead of being surrounded by lots of little kids. It's just too hard for me right now. So I know plenty of people that make those decisions for holidays or they go away to some exotic location and choose to have Rosh Hashanah in the Bahamas or wherever it is because they need something different because their regular family environment is too triggering. So that's that's the first thing. You have control over your situation. If you are staying with a specific family member and you're there, you're stuck there, right, for X number of days, um, there are a bunch of options and ways that you can make it easier. Number one, always ask for your own room. And maybe if it's in part of, part of the apartment that is away from children, and I'm speaking now specifically to people who are single, who are divorced, who are widowed, who like sometimes like those people tend to be like, oh, you could just sleep with the older kids, like, or, or the younger kids. No, you are a grown up. Ask for your own space. Um, in addition to that, there might be a neighbor that can put you up. So you actually really can have your own space and you can leave because you have a headache and it's just too much. So like having your own space is absolutely important. That's, that's number one. Number two is, as I just alluded to, lots of people get headaches and migraines. Lots of people suddenly develop stomach problems. Um, you can create, and I, I'm not an advocate of lying. I'm an advocate of self-preservation. You can create your own medical situation. And if you need an excuse to leave, or maybe it's just, I'm going to go take a walk now. I'm just, going to change change of scenery or you can specifically schedule your meals so that you have some meals with your big family and some meals maybe with other neighbors or do meals on your own if you're still staying in that community so there are lots of options in terms of like making sure that you can protect your boundaries and your own emotions even while being with family um, and lastly, the last tip that we always give to people is 
just because you don't have children yet, and I'm a big believer in the yet because I'm a hopeful person, or that maybe you don't have the number of children or you don't have a baby at this moment or you're not pregnant at this moment. There is no reason for you to be the shmata of the family. And I mean like the nebach, the one who's pitied, the one who always has to cook, the one who always has to clean up, the one who always has to, has to set the table, the one who always has to babysit the little kids because everyone else is exhausted. You have a right to say no. And you can lay that out beforehand and say, hey, um, I know that this is a hard time and everybody's exhausted in this, but I have plans to do X, create something so that you don't have to be that person or just very plainly say, I need to go rest too. I'm also tired. And it's not fair that I get the burden of all of this work while everyone else doesn't have it. So stand up for yourself, advocate for yourself, even when you're in the midst of all of this family. Speaking about family, let me ask about the narrative that we generally have. It's a beautiful narrative that we in the Jewish world in general and the Orthodox community in particular have that part of what makes us special, part of what makes us unique is our beautiful family life, our emphasis on families. I think that's true. I also think it can be very painful for people who don't have families and who don't have children or who struggle with wanting to have more children. Do you think that that's a narrative that we have to change or alter in some way? Or is there a way that we can maintain that narrative while also taking the feelings of people who are struggling into account? All right, look, I, I really think the latter. There, there is tremendous beauty and power in our family, like you know, there are so many people, and and I'm I'm speaking of myself as well. I'm a balas chuba. Um, I grew up with there are three of us. I found it tremendously powerful being in homes where there were many of kids running around the table on a Shabbos and seeing like different generations come back for different holidays. There is a tremendous power about what we do and what we have. And I don't want to take away anything from that. I think that all of us do have the capacity to understand that not everyone is the same, right? Like we don't all look the same. We don't all dress the same. We don't all have the same profession. We all are different. And there are even differences within our family sizes. And so my job is to try to sensitize people and remind us, remind all of us that it is okay to be in a different stage of life. It is okay to not look the same or have the same or be the same. And so like that people themselves shouldn't feel bad that they're different, but also that we have to accept and embrace and bring in the outsiders, bring in the people who are feeling less than and not push them away. So much of what we do in Judaism is we were strangers in a strange land, right? Like we were the ones who were constantly away. We were the ones that had to make these inroads. We're still the minority of the people in the world. It's our job to embrace the people that are ours and not push them away that they need to find other sources of comfort. We can do this even while showing the beauty and knowing that some of that beauty might be difficult. Amy, a few minutes ago, you mentioned that you're a hopeful person. 
I'm wondering about that balance between hope and acceptance. I don't always know how to navigate that. I'll give a very, very different example. When someone has v'shalom is sitting shiva, we don't say, oh, this is in some way positive because that person's receiving their just reward or we'll see them again at Tchiat We can believe these ideas, of course, but there's a time for them. And when someone is sitting shiva, that is not the time for any sort of hopeful message like that. It's just not. This is a time for acceptance, not for hopes for the future. It's just, the, it's completely not the right time for it. Lahavdil, I don't want to compare anything to sitting shiva. When somebody is struggling with anything, if somebody's struggling with infertility, on the one hand, we can say, oh, I heard about so-and-so, this wonderful story, this miracle story, a story in Tanakh, a story in the Gemara, a true story that I know myself. This person was struggling for so long and yet had a child or children. It's hard for me to know when it's good to give hope and when it's more important to help someone accept their situation without giving up that hope. Do you have any guidance on how to navigate that? So I'm actually going to change your question. And I'm going to say, it's not about getting a person to a point where they accept their situation. I believe, and in the work that we do, what we try to get people to is a place where they feel supported and they feel comforted no matter what their situation is. They may never accept the fact that they don't have children or that acceptance may come years down the line, but it's not our job to make them accept it. That's what I believe. It's our job to hold people in their pain. And so if you look at any of the, you know, advice that, you know, all these famous psychologists give in terms of holding people in pain, it's not about fixing. It's not about like, oh, there's a great doctor. Oh, you're, 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 you're trying to have children. Oh, my friends, cousins, friends, sister-in-law use this doctor. No, it's not about, oh, try those herbs. Oh, try IVF back to our previous conversation. It's not about offering solutions. It's about holding people in their pain. It's about, wow, that's really hard. Wow, I'm here for you no matter what. Oh God, you just had a loss. Oh, that transfer just failed. I'm coming over and bringing you dinner. You don't need to open the door. I'm just leaving it for you. And when you're ready to get it, it's there. And I'm gonna keep calling you or keep texting you every single day. You don't need to answer. You don't ever need to answer, but I want you to know that I'm here for you when you're ready to talk. That's what it's about. It's about the, we don't have the power to change people's situations. We don't have the power to change people's minds. What we do have the power to do is make people feel that no matter what's going on in their life, that they can come to us no matter what. And so this idea of hope and these miraculous stories, they're amazing. They're wonderful. They're incredible. But if your specific viewpoint, not viewpoint, if your specific goal is to support someone, then sharing these stories, what do they do? Just think about it from the listener's perspective, right? Like it's, oh, I just went through like my fourth miscarriage and you're telling me don't give up because I have a friend who like just had like her sixth kid and she had 10 miscarriages. So all that makes me think is, oh, that happened for her. How come it's not happening for me? How come I'm still in this space where 
how much more pain am I going to have to go through in order to get to that point? And is there ever going to be a point? We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what God has in store for us. And so the language that we try to use that I was supposed to have a baby and what I try to use in my personal life is always, you're going to get through this and I'm going to help you and I'm going to stand by you and I'm going to sit with you and I'm going to bring you ice cream and chocolate and wine and babka and all the things because I'm going to help you get through this. And I promise that you're not going to go through this alone. That's the only thing we can promise people. And so I don't love those miraculous stories. I try to do the other instead. Okay. Such important points. Thank you again. I know we don't have much time left, but there are two more questions I want to make sure I get in before we finish up, Amy. The first question is about marriage and how infertility can affect a marriage. And perhaps if one partner or the other is medically the cause, I'm not sure I'm using the right terminology over here, but is the cause of the infertility rather than both of them. And if I use the wrong terms, please, please correct me. If that's the case, how can a couple avoid feeling resentment, avoid feeling upset at their partner, effectively, even if it's not intellectually logical, but emotionally blaming the other person? The reason that I don't have a child is because you can't have a child. What would you suggest to a married couple who's going through this together, ways to get through it? First of all, your terminology was perfect. So it is, we we do the definitions, we talk about male factor infertility versus female factor infertility. So those are, when we say factor, it means the, the that was the person that was at fault, so to speak. But I honestly can't answer you on one foot. Um, I can't answer this question on one foot. I mean, this is years of therapy for people. Um, but simplistically, the reality is there, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, there are specific support groups that are devoted exactly to this, the, that, that resentment, so to speak, it is extremely difficult. And, and I think that like at the end of the day, um, as with all things in marriage and in relationships, so much of this boils down to communication. If I, you know, if I would give you an answer on one foot here, it's about communication. It's about expressing feelings. It's about expressing disappointment, frustration. I, you know, I have to go through these treatments, even though I, if I was married to somebody else, I wouldn't like, but these are very difficult, intricate, um, complicated questions that everybody needs support for. Absolutely. Both the partner who has the problem and the other partner, because obviously the person who has the problem, there's a tremendous amount of guilt and shame and like all of that, in addition to the the blame and, and all the things coming from both sides. So this, at the end of the day, this is about working through all of these issues, communication and getting support. Okay. And that leads me to my next question, which again, I'm guessing is going to have a similar answer because it's simply too big a topic to answer al regalachat on one foot. But when we speak about infertility, at least for me, I naturally think primarily about women. Perhaps that's because growing up in an Orthodox world, we speak about the akara. We don't speak about the man who can't have children as much as we speak about the women who weren't able to have children. Now, admittedly, back to Rosh Hashanah, we do know the Chazal say that Avraham and Sarah both 
were not able to have children at a certain point. And yet, at the same time, on Rosh Hashanah, Sarah was the one who was remembered. Avraham, eventually his mazal changed, different midrashim, and he was able to have children before Sarah was. So we often think about infertility as a female problem, to put it bluntly. And yet, at the same time, it's also a male problem, and men can be very hurt by it. Are there significant differences in the ways that men and women have to address the problem of infertility? I'm speaking about their own emotional, not medical needs, but their emotional need for support. Are there some specific differences that you would like to outline? Again, you know, let's spend another 27 hours talking about this topic too. Um, but the, I think there are a couple of points to elucidate. Number one the classic thought that, you know, men don't have emotions or they don't express their emotions and women are the ones who are doing all of the emoting is absolutely not the case. Um, number one, men have emotions. I mean, I, I'm not a man, but you, you can, can you, I can acknowledge that. that. Yes. Do men have I approve that message. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Um, so number one, men have emotions, but there's the stereotype that men don't express their emotions as readily as women do. And so therefore it's classically when, if we're talking about infertility or even loss, right? It's classically like the woman is the one that's constantly seeking out support and seeking out these different kinds of therapists and and talking to all her friends. And like, Anne is like, you know, in the bathroom, like fixing the toilet, right? Like it's, it's the, like he's fixing and she's like emoting those stereotypes exist because there's always kernel of truth to all stereotypes, but I really want to dissuade people from thinking that that's the only way that men emote is by fixing. There are a range of emotions that men have in addition to a range of emotions that women have. Um, some are extremely expressive, need a tremendous amount of support and others are not as expressive and don't need as much support. Um, I think the, um, the this idea that they need support in exactly the same way, though, in that they need to talk about it all the time, I think that's the piece where people get sort of hung up. Support for a man, and again, I'm using these broad generalizations here. Understood. Um, support, support for a man can look and often does look very different than support for a woman. So support for a woman, we classically think therapist, um, support groups. We talk a lot about speaking to the friends and the family and all the people, like just to be able to get that out. For men, maybe it's just like hanging out with the guys and hanging out at a bar hanging out at a sporting event, going to play sports, going to the gym, having social interactions, but it not being specifically fertility related. That's often the way men process. And the way I hear other fertility organizations, when they plan events that are specifically supported for men, it's not the like, you know, let's all sit around and talk. It's the let's have an activity and let's like be together and feel you're not alone. And we're all getting together because we're all struggling with the same thing, but the topic may not come up. That's what people find to be the most powerful and the most helpful for men. But again, I just want to remind people that every person is an individual and that, you know, you know, your person best 
the best way to try to determine how to support the male figure in your life is to ask them, what do you want? What do you need? Are you fixing that toilet because you just need alone time to process? Whereas like I need alone time or I don't need alone time. I actually need lots of people around. Like you need to ask because sometimes what happens is the man is off doing that, like the fixing and the woman's like, I'm here crying and you're fixing and you're not supporting me and we're not talking. And it it just it creates a lot of resentment. So at the end of the day, the core of any good relationship around any issue that is specifically people are specifically dealing with is all about communication. Ask for your needs and also tell people what you need to make sure that each of you are getting exactly what the other needs. And I'm using a lot of the word needs here, but there are specific needs, but those needs need to be communicated. Dr. Amy Barron, I'm so grateful that you joined me today and spoke with such honesty and in such a genuine and personal way. I'm sure that everybody listening wants to develop the proper sensitivity, especially at this time of year when some of the insensitivity can seem even more acute than normal. Having you on and listening to your wisdom is very, very important. So I thank you. Thank you. And Ksiva Vekhasimatova. My Alzheimer's diagnosis was hard to take. But early detection allowed us to take control of the situation together. Talk to your family about seeing a doctor. Go to alz.org slash time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.